Welcome to the latest Grazia Life Advice. Thanks as always for being with us. We've got an incredibly thoughtful and profound, I'd even say challenging set of six life tips this week from a psychotherapist and counsellor who specialises in supporting people dealing with grief. I'm Julia Samuel, I'm a psychotherapist and author, and I'm the guest of Grazia Life Advice podcast. As you'd no doubt expect, Julia's tips cut straight to the heart of managing relationships, both with those around us and with our own minds and bodies. There's no way that where you love people that you're not going to have disagreements and hurts. But the key is that you, you have rupture and you have repair. There are practical tips coming up, things to help you feel better even when you're at your lowest ebb. However bad you feel, however furious you are, if you just get outside into whatever environment it is, green is better, you know, research shows, you will feel better when you come back. Yeah. And to, to help yourself do it, I would always give yourself a treat afterwards. And a reminder that no matter how difficult things are, it's important to break away from the tough stuff to enjoy life. You know, we are born to flirt and dance and have sex and laugh and play. And we lose that in all our worries and trying to survive in the world. As you'll hear in the chat, this was a particularly thought-provoking episode for me. And I really hope you get as much out of listening to Julia's wise words as I did. Hi, Julia. Thanks so much for joining us on the Grazia Life Advice podcast today. How are you doing on this slightly grey, miserable, middle of World War Three day? Well, I'm, I've done some things that lift my spirits. I try and balance myself. So I went on a bike ride at seven o'clock this morning and I bicycled nine miles. So I'm quite pleased with myself. And that's kind of lifted my mood. And so I feel pretty good, actually. Great. And you've got a new book coming out. Is that right? Yes, I've written a new book called Every Family Has a Story, How We Inherit Love and Loss. So it's eight stories of different families, multi-generation families, and my work with them. So it's really, I'm very pleased with it. That sounds fascinating and like something me and my family should definitely, definitely read. <laughs> um, so we're going to be talking about your, your life advice today, and I'm really interested to to get into your six words of wisdom. Um, let's start with your first piece of advice, and I'm going to let you tell me what this one is so my first piece of advice is that relationship is the predictor of our levels of happiness and outcome in our lives Mm. that when people look back on their lives more than any single other factor the thing that predicts their wealth their health their happiness their longevity and their well-being is the love and connection that they've had through their lives their relationships and that's all of their relationships their friendships, their work colleagues, and their family relationships. Mm. Was there a way that if your early life is sort of fraught with, um, I guess, bad relationships, for want of a better word, um, is there a way that you can kind of make that better for yourself in adult life? Or are those bad relationships, do they become your narrative for the rest of your life? So uh, what we know from research and as therapists is that how to be in relationship, we learn from our childhood. So if they have been toxic, difficult, um, mm. insecure relationships, that is what we take into our relationships in adulthood. 
But as human beings, we have this superpower, which is neuroplasticity. We have this capacity to change. Mm. And often the pain is the agent of change, but also awareness. So when I work with clients, you can't eradicate the injuries from the past. You can't suddenly make yourself from being insecure and anxious because that was the unpredictableness of your childhood into secure and confident. But through understanding yourself and behaviors and ways of being, you can um, change your response to situations and that then changes your capacity to be in relationship so that you can kind of know that that's your Jaws music. So when someone doesn't call you, you think they hate you and you tell yourself Mm -hmm. this shitty committee, he doesn't love me anymore. And that's your kind of Jaws music. But then you can say to yourself, actually, no, I don't know that. That's where I've gone to take a breath check myself, calm myself down, and then you can tell yourself a different story which will uh, impact your behaviour, which will impact then the quality of your relationship with the person that didn't ring you. Mm. As a psychotherapist, do you find it harder or easier to have good relationships yourself? That is a good question. So I think all of us, I mean, I react like anybody does. So I get upset, I get angry, I get hurt I worry I guess being have being a therapist for over 30 years I do have awareness and insight and I do know what my best medicine is so like today I made myself get on a bike Mm -hmm. and go for a a bike ride so that I I know how to what we call in the trade kind of self-regulate because when you're going to fight or flight when you're distressed you tend to attack or run Mm. And that makes the whole situation worse. So I know how to calm myself down, think about it more, kind of connect with myself. And so I don't I don't blow up and break relationships mm. like I might have done if I hadn't been a therapist. Yeah, I've often wondered with my own experience of therapists as well, it's like whether you feel an extra pressure in your personal life to be the best kind of person because of the job that you do or whether you kind of allow yourself to still have the same neuroses and difficulties as everyone completely because I mean the thing that I've learned is that we all have them you know letting myself have them and know that that we're that we're frail and we're faulty is a kind of central part of being a therapist it's never Mm. about being perfect and like going for you you know I hate this whole thing about going for your best self living your best life (laughs) You know, because that just sets up this idealized version of yourself that we can never get to. And so, no, I'm pretty good at recognizing my own stuff. And also my children and my husband certainly will tell me. So. <laughs> oh, that's great <laughs> to surround yourself with people that can uh, reflect you back at you. Yes. Um, your second piece of advice is that love is not a soft skill and we need to know ourselves and support ourselves to dare to love fully and receive love fully. I think that's a pretty good one. I think it's a Um, great one. Tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) So I think often because emotions and communication and being in relationship is invisible, we haven't treated it with its due kind of time and attention. So Mm. We're not taught at school about our emotional selves or what kind of love means or how to show love. And, you know, going to my first one, if it's what matters most to us, to our outcomes, to kind of know that love is a risky business. You know, where you love most 
you invest most, you hate most, you feel most, and you make your deepest mistakes. Because indifference is the opposite of love, not hate. And so that the more you kind of know, you know, that frame of love language, what is your love language? What is the language of love of your partner or the people of your friendships? You begin to understand your differences and allow the differences so that you can have a coherent way of trusting and loving each other and being open to each other without automatically going, you know, they don't love me. You know yourself and you dare to kind of open yourself. It's Loving is, is you have to expose your vulnerability to be mm. have authentic connection. Mm. Which is easier said than done often, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the kind of cruel paradoxes of life is that the thing that we mind most about, we most want to have control of, mm. is the thing we don't have control of. So we don't have control how people respond to us. We can influence it about how we are in relation to them. Mm. But in many ways, we need to kind of dare to let them see all of ourselves. You know, because one of the definitions of love is being fully known and seen for who you are with mm. all of your fault lines and all of your gifts and joys. And that then you're not hiding anything. Mm -hmm. But often we want to hide ourselves or control the other person because we have this fear that if they really see me and they really know me, they won't love me. Mm. And what does that do to you when you're in a moment like that? You shut down often or mm. you you run away or you or you attack. So mm. it, it causes this thing of rupture yeah. where you feel hurt. But I think often people just shut down and withdraw because yeah. there's a sense of shame. Yeah, what's the best way to deal with that then um, a sort of sense of rupture or um, feeling like someone hasn't got you right or got you somebody's completely misinterpreted your behavior and has built up a story, story. in their head about who you are and um, how how you behave um, and it completely doesn't align with how you see yourself and what you think happened so, I mean, the, there are two aspects of that. So I did, for, for my new book, I did 12 touchstones for the well-being of family. And one of them was communication and the other one was to fight productively. And mm. so that in all relationships, particularly our most intimate relationships, we we will fight. There's no way that where you love people that you're not going to have disagreements and hurts. But the key is that you 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 have rupture and you have repair mm -hmm. so that you work to build the relationship and repair the relationship after the fight. So say that thing of where you've told yourself this story, mm. you need to let your feeling settle. You can't kind of heal and repair when you're still furious. But if you can go back and have a proper conversation about what was actually going on, that I was thinking this, mm -hmm. what were you thinking? You were thinking that. And then you can understand that often the thing you were fighting about actually comes from a much deeper issue. Mm. So that through the repair, you know each other better and you feel closer mm. and you understand each other. And that can protect you from kind of carrying that fight in you, which if you don't have the repair, you have this pile up of fights. And it's mm. like this laundry list of fights that comes out the next fight because the last yeah. time you did yeah. and you accuse each other. And that just builds weapons, words as weapons of destruction that mm. then kind of tear the relationship down. 
And how important is the word sorry in this repair? Does it does it actually mean anything? Does pe- I found myself really wanting somebody to say I'm sorry to me, but actually I don't think they're ever going to say I'm sorry. Maybe they want me to say it. And so how do I get over the the need to have that sort of acknowledgement of I did something wrong and I'm sorry? I mean, I think when you repair a relationship and you've kind of understood each other, I think inevitably, if you've been honest with each other, you're both sorry that it kind of went the way it did and that you hurt each other's feelings. Yeah, It doesn't necessarily mean that you don't believe it was legitimate saying what you did or it's not kind of taking back Mm. your hurt or kind of pretending that you're not upset anymore. But sorry can be that we we hurt each other you wouldn't you don't really intentionally want to hurt each other though often in the fight that is the one thing that you want to do Mm, yeah Um, definitely I mean sometimes I guess it can just feel a bit petty and irrelevant to need that word when actually there's so many more important ways to heal such a kind of breakdown but I think what you're talking about is much more acknowledgement than Mm. sorry you want someone to acknowledge Yes. That they have upset and distressed you. Mm-hmm. Because when that isn't acknowledged, you somehow feel they've got away with it. They're skipping yeah. off into the sunset happy and I'm left carrying this injury and you're just, you're not recognising it. And so that feeds you. And then you start imagining all these scenarios where you want them to get hurt too, <laughs> where, you, where you're going to pay them back. Oh my God, are you in my head? (laughs) (laughs) And that's what happens in those relationships. And so the next time you do something, and that then becomes the basis of the dynamic between you. So Mm. I think it's much more acknowledgement than sorry. Yeah. Before we get too deep into my personal therapy session here, um, your third piece of advice is about moving your body. Julia, can you tell me a bit more about, about this piece? So it's sort of unsexy, but nice guidelines. National Institute of Clinical Excellence say that regular exercise is the equivalent of a low dose of antidepressants. That is because physiologically, when we stay still and we don't shift our body, the emotions that we feel that are transmitters of information get kind of stuck and Mm -hmm. they kind of give us messages that ruminate around our body. But also... I think everyone's heard of the fight, flight, freeze, the kind of response, the heightened response um, part of us, the parasympathetic, which goes in response to danger or fear or distress. It goes on high alert. And the thing that de-escalates it, that is the circuit breaker for those for those feelings, the cortisol and the adrenaline running around our body, is actually exercise. So that when you get outside and you move your body, and it can Mm. be a fast walk, you don't have to kind of run a marathon, and it can be 15 minutes, the cortisol levels drop, the adrenaline levels drop, and then you have more oxytocin, and then you connect with yourself, Mm. and you feel safe, and you feel safer in your mind, safer in your body, and then you have the capacity to think more clearly. Mm. Because when you're in fight, fight, or freeze, your neofrontal cortex, the bit, the part of you that is needed for thinking and making, you know, making decisions goes offline because you're only there to focus mm. on the danger and what you're going to do in response to it. 
Yeah. So if you, however bad you feel, however furious you are, if you just get outside into whatever environment it is, green is better, you know, research shows, you will feel better when you come back. Yeah. And to, to help yourself do it, I would always give yourself a treat afterwards. So associate the behavior with then a reward when you come home. So Mm. whatever that treat would be. Yeah, I really can personally relate to that. I mean, I recently went through um, two or three years of unsuccessful fertility treatment. Oh, Lottie. I realized after uh, the last cycle of doing uh, IVF that I just felt so stagnant in my body because I hadn't been moving because when you're doing IVF you're like oh, I don't want to do anything I don't want to you know well partly when you're doing the injections you're like oh I just can't I'm just so heavy and tired and don't feel like it but also you feel like you know you don't want to sort of like mess anything up by running too fast you know and shaking anything too vigorously but um after after sort of accepting that it hadn't worked for me, I um, signed up with a personal trainer and I had my first session with him in our local park. And I honestly felt the most incredible rush of endorphins. And I actually burst into tears at the end of our session because I, to just feel sweaty and to just move and to feel out of breath, like I hadn't felt out of breath for so long that it was such a powerful moment of just like, this is my body. I'm in myself and I'm like finding my power again. And um, so I, I completely, completely uh, agree with what you've just said. And if anyone listening is sort of in that scenario, you know, it can often feel like so hard just to make the first step to go out and move, which is why I got a personal trainer. Because I was like, if I spend money, I have to do it. Um, but honestly, afterwards, you just... There's no feeling like it. So I think that that's so important. And thank you for for bringing it up. Yeah, it's very moving what you said. And I guess that the metaphor in a way of of the release and the tears was that you reminded yourself that you were alive and engaged with the world and Mm. free when you'd felt sort of imprisoned and failed and a victim in your body. So the shifting of it Mm, kind of released you. It was a lightness that I felt. And I felt like, okay, this pregnancy isn't going to happen for me, but instead I can feel strong and I can feel fit and I can feel all of those things that I wouldn't be able to feel if I ended up carrying a child, at least in the short term. And Mm. to sort of like embrace that was, yeah, was really powerful. Yeah. And it gave you hope. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We are just going to jump to a quick ad break and we will be right back after this. And we're back with Julia Samuels, who's sharing her life advice with us today. And her fourth piece of advice is to have fun. Um, Julia, how do you have fun? Why is it important? And are we doing it enough? I have fun as an antidote to doing quite a kind of intense job that is a lot to do with pain and sorrow and distress. I have fun because I have always loved having fun. And I don't think any of us put time aside enough to have fun. I think we get caught up in the stress of having to get our tasks done and pushing down and getting on 
and actually kind of realizing that you need to put work down, have boundaries and intentionally go and do stuff, even if it's just putting on music and dancing in your kitchen, which I do, releases you into a different version of yourself that builds your resilience and also kind of reminds you why you're alive. I mean, you know, we are born to flirt and dance and have sex and laugh Mm -hmm. and play. And we lose that in all our worries and kind of trying to survive in the world. Mm. But having fun is also free. It doesn't have to be expensive. It's just that we what we choose to do with our time and it can be half an hour it doesn't have or 10 minutes mm. I think we kind of think oh to have fun it means I have to go and buy tickets for something or I have to kind of do something that's difficult and we put up barriers to it when it could be so one of the things I do with my children is that we push and pull so they push one way and I push the other but afterwards you always kind of laugh yeah, I do love, that's what I love about being a parent um, to a three-year-old is that she forces me to have fun and she forces me to be playful and silly and do voices and play characters and roll around and dance in the kitchen. Like, she brings so much of that child joy into my life that I hope as she gets older, I'll still be able to kind of, I feel like I've tapped into that part of me now and I've brought out the child in me and I hope I don't lose it. She gets older and I get more embarrassing. <laughs> but I think you're only a decent parent when you're really embarrassing. Okay. It's like when they're going, oh, mom. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> your fifth piece of advice is that comparing yourself to others is the direct route to misery. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about this, Julia. Well, I think we can do it in so many different ways. Obviously, social media, one of its greatest, you know, I'm a fan of social media. I think it gives us connection to a wide world and gives us information and contact, which is life giving and life expanding. Um, But I think on the other hand, when it's used as your kind of sense of identity and your sense of value for yourself and you start looking at other people's curated photographs and and lifestyle online and comparing yourself to it. But actually, even your best friend, they're earning more than you or they got a nicer house than you. Or I think all of those things just diminish the innate value of who you are. Mm -hmm. And that if we have, if we kind of can really trust that we are of value in how we're living our lives innately and that how we are in relationship with others, how we are in the world is what matters. You know, when you die, people don't remember your stuff. They don't remember the house you lived in, your Chanel handbag. They don't remember any of that. What they remember is how they felt when they were with you. Mm. And that's what you want people to remember is, is how you are with them. Mm, yes very true your sixth piece of advice is um that when you're suffering for whatever reason that you should turn to yourself with kindness and compassion talk to me about this one so i mean i've been a ther- as i said therapist for many decades and one of the cruel cruelest aspects of seeing people who are suffering is that when they come through the door 
they often start with, I know I'm being pathetic, or I know that I'm, you know, I'm an idiot. Why, you know, I should be okay. I shouldn't be making a fuss. And they're really suffering, you know, from whatever the, the circumstances are. And one of the kind of predictors of our outcomes when we suffer, and, you know, my specialty is grief, is our love and connection and support to other people. But if that includes ourselves, so if we start attacking ourselves and I, I, people have what I call a shitty committee where they start, you know, this awful self-attack and that blocks their capacity to heal. It, you know, because pain is an agent of change. Pain is what forces you to face the reality that you didn't want and adapt and grow through it to learn to live with it, to accommodate it. But if you're constantly telling yourself you're useless you and you're weak, you don't allow yourself to f- have the full experience of your feelings and come through, mm. if that makes sense. Yes, it definitely does. Um, interesting to me that you're, you're a, a specialist in, in the grief therapy. My family has experienced a a disproportionate amount of uh, grief I think compared to lots of people and one of the things I think I've found most challenging then as a family is that each of you is grieving in a different way for the same person and so when you come together there's just so much there's just so many emotions and layers and um complex histories because everyone had their own individual relationship with that person and came to the grief from their own life and things that they'd experienced that you haven't experienced and like I suppose my question is how do you as a family how do you grieve together but also allow yourself the compassion to say I'm grieving differently to you and that's okay I mean, that's such an insightful point is that when we grieve in a family, we do grieve differently. And one of the kind of metaphors I use with families and I used in my book of grieving families was if you have a mobile above a bed and you cut off one piece of the mobile, you know, baby's mobile, the whole Mm. mobile tilts. So when someone dies there needs to be a recalibration of all of the relationships. But one of the things I got from working with these multi-generation families is that everyone's experience of the person that died and their experience with each other is different. And if you are going to have a cohesive, integrated, supportive family, you need to allow the different stories, that Mm. there isn't one truth and there isn't just your truth, but when you can hear each other, in, in this case was facilitated by me, so you don't get this standoff of, you know, he loved me best, or mm. I know that this is right, because often there's this fight about which is the story is the true story. But by having me as the facilitator that they could hear each other's stories actually expands their connection, but also their relationship with the person that died, and that that is in itself very supportive because when you start battling like my grief is worse than yours or this is my truth Mm. you diminish not only your relationship with the family that survived but you diminish your relationship with the person who died because you're kind of white knuckling it 
that happens so often in families that when someone dies, you, the pre-existing fault lines rupture. And so it's how you manage that as a family mm. which will predict whether you rupture more. You know, there are plenty of families who have fought over somebody's death and they've never come back. Yeah, so interesting. Um Okay, your worst, <laughs> we're on to your worst piece of advice now. So something that you've perhaps been advised to do in your life that you've later realised is um, just not for you. So <laughs> mine is, is a little bit bizarre maybe, but mine was silence. Okay. Is not being told stuff, not being told the truth, not knowing what was going on. Um, this idea that what you don't know isn't going to hurt you. Mm. Don't ask questions. Um, pretend everything is okay. Um, put on a good front. Be all right. Forget mm. and move on. So all of that silence. And then having conversations about things that absolutely don't matter at all. And never having the conversations about the stuff that's really going on or that really matters. It's not like, like being ghastly because I don't particularly like all those expressions, but it's it's like you think, you think, am I going mad? Because they're talking about whether they should use lamb or beef for cottage pie. And mm. actually yesterday there was this enormous thing that happened and that isn't being talked about at all. Or, you know, my mum's in hospital or, you know, my brother is stormed out of the house and isn't coming back. I mean, I'm making those things up, but... And yet you kind of start squibbling about how you're going to make the suit yeah. or whatever it is. Is it a defence mechanism most of the time? Yeah, I think the defence mechanism is completely a defence mechanism, which I think the fear is that if I let myself know and actually name and say what is happening, I am inevitably going to feel the feelings that come mm. with that. And if I white knuckle it block it and cut it and get busy or self-medicate with drugs and alcohol or all of those things that you do I'm going to make it go away mm. but of course all you do is make it louder and yeah. create more problems and I suppose um, that's how trauma gets passed down in, in families in that if nobody's ever talked about the thing that happened it just gets pushed under and under and under and kind of inherited um and then more so it, things come up Completely. So, I mean, certainly one of the things in my new book is looking at how trauma gets passed down, the research that shows what the, the trauma that isn't um, dealt with in one generation, the behaviours that are used to deal with it get passed down to the next generation right. until someone's prepared to feel the pain. So my message to people is kind of look up and mm. hear and discover and find out the untold stories of what wasn't talked about. And that will help you understand yourself. And in yeah. doing that, you can kind of respond with more resilience often. Amazing advice. Such good advice. I can't wait to read your book and I'm going to get a copy for um, lots of people <laughs> because it just sounds so necessary and vital. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Julia. Thank you so much. Lovely talking to you, Lottie. And um, to all of your listeners, I, I hope you find something that was useful. Julia Samuel's book is called Every Family Has a Story, How We Inherit Love and Loss. A really amazing and thought-provoking experience to speak with Julia. Thanks again to her and thanks so much to you for listening. 
If you know someone who would benefit from listening to today's episode, please share this with them. Word of mouth and listener recommendations are such an important way for us to reach new people with the podcast. So thanks for being with us and we'll be back next time.